Hello, good evening. Uh, on behalf of the LSE, I'd like to welcome you and to introduce our speaker for uh, this evening's lecture. Uh, the title of the lecture is Making Sense of the Islamic State, an Organic Crisis in Arab Politics. And our speaker tonight is the eminent professor of international relations here at the LSE, Fawaz Jerjes, uh, my colleague in the Department of International Relations. Um, Professor Jerjes is well known for uh, no less than six single-authored books and many other co-authored and edited books and books uh, soon to come out, including a book on ISIS, uh, A Short History. Uh, he hopes it will be a short history, um, both as a book and otherwise. Um, uh, and uh, two other books. All of his work has covered... Uh, the Middle East and beyond it, the question of Islam in international relations. Uh, he's started off his career looking at uh, American policy and its impact in the Middle East with two books in the 1990s on that topic, and more recently a book on the Obama administration and its policies towards the Middle East. He then shifted his attention, uh, beginning with a, a book on political Islam, uh, to a series of books and studies on first Al-Qaeda and now ISIS. And he's also worked individually and with other scholars uh, to look at the impact of the revolutions and other episodes of contentious politics that we associate with the so-called Arab Spring and its aftermath. Uh, today he'll be talking to us about ISIS and its prospects. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Professor Fawaz Jerjes. Thank you. I thank you, John, for taking the time um, away from your family and to chair this talk. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to see you. And I, I want to welcome all of you to the LSC. I'm sure you've been welcomed more than once. Um, and we hope to see some of you here at the LSC uh, in the future. Uh, and I'm sure that some of you uh, will apply a help and join our community. Uh, as John uh, has mentioned uh, my task today is to talk about uh, the spectacular uh, resurgence or surge of ISIS. Uh, I think I, I, I'm very much interested, like many other uh, researchers, on where does ISIS come from? Uh, how do we make sense of ISIS? Uh, what are the causes, the drivers of ISIS? I mean, I think this is a I mean, this is, as you know, this is the motto of the LSE. We, we have to understand, really, the causes of things, the drivers behind not only the rise of ISIS, but this spectacular surge uh, in the past one year and a half. Um, so this is really the key uh, focus of my talk today, is to really try to make sense of this particular uh, socio-religious totalitarian movement uh, that has now, as you well know, captured uh, a huge, uh, I mean, uh, terrain uh, in both Iraq and Syria. It controls a state as big as the United Kingdom. Uh, it controls the lives of more than uh, five million people. It has a mini uh, large sectarian army numbering between uh, 17,000 and 40,000 uh, skilled fanatical uh, fighters. Uh, it has, more important from my point of view, it's not just the mini-army, the fanatical killers uh, who are basically visiting death and horror on the local communities is what we call al-Hadina al the social base. Uh, 
that ISIS would not have done as well as it has without having this particular social base of support. Probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who basically think that ISIS uh, is the um, enemy of their enemies. And thus, they either implicitly or explicitly provide support for ISIS in both Iraq and Syria and other places as well. So my focus today, please remember, is not to talk about the future of ISIS. That's not this speculation. Um, it's not the durability of ISIS. We don't know this speculation. This is, you know, we talk about it in newspapers, television. And as you all know, as undergraduates and graduates, you know, our, you know, uh, founder, uh, Machiavelli, said only the fools, only fools speculate about the future. And trust me, um, I have been a fool more than once. I have eaten my words more, more than once when I speculate about the future. But I hope through really laying out what we think, what I think are the main causes and drivers behind the rise and the surge of ISIS, at least you will have an idea, a glance about the context, about basically the potential durability of this particular movement. And to simplify things here, I want to focus on five variables and, and, of course, there are multiple variables, but as you know, when we talk about social phenomena, we have to, I mean, break down uh, the complexity of the subject and simplify it to the most important variables. So I'm going to put on the table five critical variables that help us really shed light on the drivers or the causes uh, of the rise and surge of ISIS. The first point I want to, the first variable I want to focus on today is that Really, a starting point, if you want to understand where ISIS, when I say ISIS, I mean there are multiple names, as you know. ISIS is the so-called Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Or another name, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, ISIL. For example, the U.S. government, President Barack Obama, referred to it as ISIL. It calls itself the Islamic State, al-Dawla al-Islamiyya. It is the Islamic State. It is. This is. There is one Islamic State. Arabs mainly refer to it as Daesh. Daesh is a highly negative term in order to really uh, bring it down to earth. So uh, citizens and the media uh, throughout the Arab and the Middle East, they, call, they don't talk about the Islamic State. They talk about Daesh as opposed to the Islamic State or ISIS or ISIL. So remember, there are multiple names. All the names mean one thing. It means this particular totalitarian socio-religious movement that has come into being in the last two years. The starting point to understand this particular movement is the U.S.-led invasion and occupation of Iraq in 2003. Please, this is not about politics. I'm not making a political argument here. Uh, you cannot understand the birth of ISIS or ISIL or Daesh without understanding the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, and what the U.S. invasion basically triggered in the, the aftermath of the invasion. That is, there in Iraq never. Iraq was mostly a secular totalitarian state as opposed to being a fundamentalist Islamic state. You can say whatever you want about Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was not a religious activist. He did not believe in, he was a secular fundamentalist as opposed to being a religious fundamentalist. He brutally suppressed, brutally suppressed uh, radical Islamist movement. 
Iraq did not have a base, did not have a major Islamist movement, either radical or extremist, period. It was the American-led invasion that destroyed the state institutions, created a vacuum of power. Most people in the region viewed the American invasion as basically an attack on a country that did not aggress against the United States. Throughout the region, tens of thousands of young men flooded into Iraq to basically fight the occupiers, the American occupiers. In fact, if it was not for the tremendous work that the United States did between 2003 and 2011, I would say the flow of young Muslims to Iraq would have exceeded the flow of young Muslims to Afghanistan after the Soviet Union invaded and occupied Afghanistan throughout the 1980s. And this is when I say Iraq, Iraq is in the heart of the Arab Islamic world. It was the seat of the Islamic Caliphate, the heart of here the Americans basically uh, unilaterally coming and trying to, regardless of what you think of Saddam Hussein. So in a matter of months, you had a foothold. Iraq had a, an, a, an al-Qaeda uh, uh, group, a group of people. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the name, the leader of the al-Qaeda in Iraq, his name his name was is Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi. He came to Iraq with 18 men in 2003. In 2004, his numbers, I mean, he had more than thousands of fighters. And you all remember the spectacular savage suicide uh, uh, bombings in Iraq between 2003 and 2006. So the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, of Iraq, the destruction of the state institutions, the dissolving of the Iraqi army... <coughs> between 200 and 300,000 men in the army were dissolved, disbanded overnight by the Americans, literally. They had a huge vacuum of power. And thousands of Ba'athists, Ba'athism was the ruling party of Iraq. It's a secular Arab nationalist party. Not to mention thousands of proud and young, young officers joined various militant groups one of the most powerful was al-Qaeda in Iraq. So the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 basically sowed the seeds, created a foothold, a Hadina Shabiya, a social base of Iraq. This is a very starting... We can talk about... In, I don't have the time. I want to move on to the various fails. But can I understand the resurgence of ISIS by just focusing on the American invasion? As many do. No, I can't. This is a, would be a very reductionist and simplistic argument. The second variable I want to focus on here is that the dysfunctional political system that was put in place by the U.S.-led occupation of Iraq between 2003 and 2006. You might say, what are you talking about? That is, here you had a strong man, a dictator, a one uh, ruling party, the Ba'ath Party. What the Americans, I mean, they came to Iraq, they thought that the Iraqis would welcome them with open arms, as liberators, you know all the nonsense. New conservatives in America, you know, I don't need to tell you about that. Unfortunately, it did not turn as, as many uh, new conservatives. Uh, they, they were thinking of creating a new social reality, literally speaking. They did, unfortunately, but it was the reverse of what they had uh, expected. So what the Americans thought, well, look, there were Sunnis, Shiites, and Kurds. The Americans being the pragmatic they are, I'm talking about the political class, I'm not talking about many of us Americans had nothing to do with the war. They said, well, look, why not divide the country between the three communities? 
religious communities, ethnic communities. So Paul Brammer, uh, literally, a, 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 and I'm not going to use any bad words here, but I don't need to tell you about Paul Brammer, an uh, ignorato, uh, uh, had nothing to do with Iraq. He decided, well, look, it's, he called it al-muhasasa ta'ifiyya, is sectarian distribution of power. So we'll give the Shiites, the Shia, are the majority in Iraq. They represent about 62%. We'll give them 60%. The Sunni Arabs, they represent between 20 and 22%. We'll give them 20%. And the Kurds, we'll give the Kurds, the Kurds are Sunnis. We'll give them about 18%. We'll give them 18%. But remember, the Kurds had already begun the process of building an autonomous de facto state after the Americans expelled the Iraqi army of Kuwait in 19. 1991. So the Kurds really were going through the whole thing, knowing that Iraq was not going to take off. They had their own autonomous region. Anyway, so you had this particular, in many ways, they imported this sectarian model from Lebanon, a failed state, and they planted this particular sectarian model in Iraq. So the Shiites overnight took ownership of Iraq. And, the, and I'm, I'm not talking about the Shiite community. I'm talking about the ruling elite, mostly exiled uh, um, elite. They came to Iraq, and this particular elite viewed said, this is our moment in history. So democracy to them, you, yes, you go and vote, but at the end of the day, we'll make the decision. This dysfunctional political system, truly broken political system, it aggravated the grievances of the Sunnis, because in the eyes of the Sunnis, Saddam Hussein was a Sunni. Even though Saddam Hussein was not just serving the interests of the Sunnis, but in the eyes of the Sunni Arabs, Iraq belonged to them. It did not, it did not belong to the Shiites. They believed that the Americans, literally, I'm simplifying, they believed that the Americans basically empowered the Shiites at their expense. And when I say the Shiites, I mean the Iraqi Shiites plus their regional patron, Iran. So there was a, a, the grievances, the Sunni grievances, uh, uh, I mean, have intensified over the years because they believed that the Shiites were basically uh, um, excluding the Sunnis, um, disfranchising the Sunnis, to a certain extent absolutely correct. But the Shiites really, they understood the democracy only elections. They wanted basically, they said, this is our moment, the first time since the birth of Iraq in the 1920s, this is our moment. So what you have in Iraq between 2003 and the present is a civil war, sectarian, communal civil war between the Sunnis and the Shiites. And this particular civil war also is nourished, is aggravated by a regional sectarian uh, rivalry between uh, Sunni-dominated Saudi Arabia and Shiite-dominated Iraq. So what's happened, what has happened in Iraq between 2003 and the present is also an extension of this regional sectarian rivalry between these two bullies, Iran being the leading Shiite state and Saudi Arabia being the birthplace of Islam. This is where Islam was born, in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia's worldview is that this is it. It, it is the Sunni Islam. And please, if you have any questions, I would be delighted to answer any questions you have. What I'm trying to say is that this particular dysfunctional political system instead of basically allowing Iraqis after the U.S. had the invasion to go on with their lives. In fact, Iraq was a broken country. Uh, and in fact, the, the, uh, in 2006, the Americans realized that you cannot, they could not defeat 
Either Al-Qaeda in Iraq, remember, between 2003 and 2006, um, ISIS, we referred to ISIS as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. The predecessor of ISIS was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And now I'm, I'm going to shift later on to talk about ISIS. But ISIS is an extension of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, different name. And I'll, I'll talk about differences and similarities. Anyway, between 2006 and 2007, the Americans truly, the American-led administration in Iraq, made a serious bid to bridge the divide between the Sunnis and the Shiites. They tried to integrate the Sunnis by, into the political process and trying to give them a stake in the political process. And it did work. Al-Qaeda in Iraq, between 2006 and 2011, was basically on the verge of collapse. Not as a result of the American surge, as President Bush would like us to believe, but as a result of the Sunnis revolting against Al-Qaeda. Between 2006, 2007, and 2011, Al-Qaeda in Iraq lost the social base that it had in the Sunni heartland. This was a critical point. Just to give you an idea, quickly, I don't have the time. When the Americans exited Iraq in 2011, Al-Qaeda in Iraq numbered fewer than 300, 400 men. It was basically almost defeated on the brink of collapse, literally. As a result of the American and the Iraqi efforts to integrate the Sunnis into the political process. So we know what it takes to defeat insurgencies, to defeat militant groups. It means you have to address the social grievances. You have to address the political grievances. You have to deny these movements what? You have to deny these movements al-hadin al-shabiyya, the social base. This is the most critical point we have learned about how al-Qaeda in Iraq was defeated between 2006 and 2011. Now I'll come to my third variable about <clears throat> the resurgence. And here I want to talk about uh, the Arab Spring up uprising. I don't have the time. Remember, please keep in mind, I'm simplifying a great deal. I just want to give you the five variables so we can really discuss. Hopefully, you can take them apart during the question and answer session so at least we can make sense of what. The Arab Spring uprising. Here you have between 2010 and 2012, millions of Arabs, young, old, men, women, Christians, Muslims, truly, across the board, millions came out and calling for change, calling for real change. Again, I'm, I'm not saying anything new. You've seen, I mean, the, 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 the wonderful, this particular wonderful promising moment in the region, in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Libya, in Yemen, in Bahrain, in Syria. Millions calling for what? For justice, al-adala. Calling for what? For freedom, al-hurriya. Calling for what? For basically dignity, al-karama. These are universal terms. We did not see any Al-Qaeda flags. Never heard a call for to build an Islamic State. Millions, millions of Arabs across the board. No calls to build Islamic States, let alone Al-Qaeda. I mean, literally, it was truly a historical moment. And because we got a glance of what we call the middle, the middle, talking about public opinion, the significant social segments in Arab societies, they, did not, they don't want, 
They want citizenship. They want empowerment. I'm not suggesting, please, they want democracy a la France, or um, they want basically to be citizens. They want to seize the state back from presidents for life. They want dignity, al-karama. You can really summarize the whole thing. So you might say, what happened? I'll tell you what happens now. If you read the newspapers and you listen to even the BBC and the CNN, the Arab Spring has turned into a dark winter. Whether it's the news media and they're trying to rewrite the history of the Arab Spring. As somehow, the Arab Spring was responsible for the resurgence of other al-Qaeda or ISIS. I mean, think of the nonsense, imposing the present on that particular historical moment. The Arab Spring uprisings were not responsible for the resurgence of other al-Qaeda or ISIS. What's responsible about the resurgence of ISIS and al-Qaeda, the Arab Spring uprising, were aborted. This is what has happened. They were aborted. Aborted by whom? The old regime, by the Assad regime, by the Yemeni regime. They were aborted by counter-revolutionary forces, elements of the old regime, the billionaires, the, the, the vested interests. They were aborted by counter-revolutionary regional powers, by Saudi Arabia, that has fought tooth and nail to preserve the old order. In Tunisia, in Mubarak, I mean, think of the investment Saudi Arabia has done to preserve the old order. They were terrified that revolution was, I mean, edging closer to their monarchy. I mean, think of Iran. Iran is a revolutionary state. Iran has fought tooth and nail to preserve what? What does Iran want to preserve? Bashar al-Assad. Tooth and nail, billions of dollars. The two leading regional bullies, regional powers, have played a major role in aborting the Arab Spring uprisings. In Syria, Without Iranian support, Assad would not be with us. He would not have had civil war. The same thing, I mean, in, in, in Egypt. You have counter-revolution now in Egypt and other places. So what we please when you think of the Arab Spring, it was not an Arab Spring. We call it uprising, large-scale social uprising by millions of people. We need to understand why this particular, why that particular moment, that particular moment, the rupture, has turned into basically spreading fires and civil wars <clears throat> as a result that the social turmoil, the political turmoil, has been transformed. So you have a civil war in Yemen, you have a civil war in Syria, you have a civil war in Iraq because of the old order is trying to basically prevent the inevitable, postpone the inevitable. And this brings me to my fourth variable, and that's the civil wars turmoil, the social political turmoil that has turned into civil wars. And that's what happened between 2011. What did I say about ISIS in 2011? A few hundred men. 2011, 2013, ISIS now numbers, we think it numbers, and give and take, nobody knows. So please be careful when you hear the numbers. No one, neither the American intelligence services, we're all speculating. But give and take, we think it's between... 20 and 40,000. Some people say half a million. I don't believe it, but I don't know. But it's a huge number when you're talking about whether it's 5,000, 10,000. When you have 25,000 foreign fighters, think, 
I mean, my take on it, you're talking give and take 50,000. It's, it's an intelligent guess, but we don't know. Don't buy, don't bite into the numbers. We don't know. No one knows. So the civil wars, what, have, what has happened in Iraq? The Arab uprisings, you have a prime minister, what we said, a sectarian-based regime, led by a person who was put in place by the Americans, Nouri al-Maliki. The name might not mean anything to you, probably it should not. He's a non-entity, but he did a great deal of damage to Iraq because he was there for nine years. Nouri al-Maliki was a sectarian parasite that allowed in many ways his divisive policies, his sectarian policies, his themes of assassinations, his policies that basically um, did not take into control all the hard work that was done between 2006 and 2011. It allowed ISIS or ISIL or al-Qaeda in Iraq to rebuild its social base of support, rebuild, insert itself within Sunni local communities who are angry, who are angry and basically enraged that they were excluded. Yes, they were excluded. They were marginalized. They were disfranchised because they were not, in fact, unemployment. We can talk about all of that. And thousands of young Sunnis, including, including former army officers, joined the new outfit, changing names. Remember, this changed names. And they changed, basically, the military structure of ISIS from a mafia-like organization to a professional, skilled military apparatus because you had hundreds, if not thousands, of former officers in the special forces in Iraq joining this particular apparatus. This is what the Arab Spring, the, how they were aborted in Iraq, did. In Syria, the civil war also allowed ISIS to do what? To have strategic depth. In 2012, al-Qaeda in Iraq established a wing in Syria. And the name was, probably doesn't mean anything to you, al-Nusra Front. From 2012 to 2014, ISIS or ISIL or al-Qaeda was able to have not only control most of the Sunnis areas in Iraq, in the so-called Sunni Triangle, it's established a strategic depth, strategic base in Syria. So the civil wars, the, the, the fourth variable is very important because the spreading fires, the civil wars as a result of the <coughs> failure of the uprisings, the counter-revolutionary forces allowed ISIS to really rebuild its networks, insert itself within the local communities and present itself as what? As the defender of the Sunni community. The sole defender, the protector. It changed character, it changed strategies. It's no longer was, was not, it was no longer about al-Qaeda. It was about the defense, the, the defense of the Sunnis against the Shiites and their regional patron, Iran. And this particular call resonates among Sunnis throughout the region because not only we said you have sectarianism creeping, but you have also a fierce regional rivalry between Sunni-dominated Saudi Arabia and Shiite-dominated Iran. This brings me to my final variable. Uh, you know, we have, as you know, in, in social sciences, not only you have a sh shopping list, we need to have a typology. I mean, you, otherwise it becomes a shopping list. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, if you ask me what's the most important variable of, I would say to you, and my own, is that the fifth variable is the most important cause or variable that really helps, explains why ISIS has done as well as it has and why ISIS might, might be with us for a long time. 
And this, what I call this is the organic severe crisis in the region, that I focus mainly on the internal dynamics. I, I don't buy that the simple thing, oh, it's all the fault of the Americans. It's nonsense. It's easy. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, sexy, but it doesn't really help us understand why we have this particular, I mean, now spectacular, monstrous organization in the heart of, of the Middle East. What am I talking about an organic severe crisis? An organic, I mean, again, you, you've read all Gramsci and how... An organic crisis is really is more than structural. It's more than severe. It basically encompasses all ways of life. It's, it's, it's an organic crisis, and here I want to try to translate, try to really translate what I mean and simplify, hopefully not simplistic, what do I mean by that if we really were to understand why ISIS has basically surged, we need to focus on the organic crisis. This is an accumulated crisis of failures, institutional failure, social failures, and economic failure. If you ask me to put a name on it, I would say it's a developmental failure, failure in the region. Let me give you an idea quickly, because how much time do I have? Uh, 45 minutes. How much time still? Another, another 10. Great. So let me try <clears throat> to simplify, to translate, to really make sense of this organic crisis institutionally. Let's talk, I mean, it's in a way an organic crisis. One element of this crisis is institutional. What do I mean by that? What keeps a society together, and I, you know this, is that people in the region, across the region, whether you're talking about Egypt, whether you're talking about Iraq, whether you're talking about Syria, whether you're talking about Lebanon, literally across the region, they don't view the institutions that exist as neutral institutions. The institutions, what we call institutions that mediate conflict, institutions that neutral. If you and I, we, we, we disagree, where do we go? We go to a court. You would expect institutions to serve, to be seen as legitimate. That is, there is no longer any hegemony in the region. The, the regimes in the regions basically have really survived on empty, on domination for the last 20 or 30 years. The system basically is bankrupt. So people don't the, the institutions even that existed in the 1940s and 50s and 60s have been gradually dismantled by what you call dictators, strongmen, whether you're talking about Hafez al-Assad or Bashar al-Assad or Muammar al-Qadhafi or Saddam Hussein or Husni Mubarak or Ali Abdullah Saleh. Most of them, they basically literally dismantled the thin institutions that existed under colonial rule. This is what's sad about it. I mean, I, I know you know this. I mean, if you look at Egypt under nominal British colonialism, which is very sad, I probably don't like to say it, the Egyptian constitution in 1923 was a decent constitution, progressive constitutions. This is under British colonialism. What happened to the, British consti or the, 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 the Egyptian constitution? Dismantled, literally block by block between 1952 and the present. Literally. Muammar al-Qadhafi, what did he do? He destroyed the army and created revolutionary committees. That was his, by the way, it was his undoing because he didn't have an army to defend him like Bashar al-Assad. He literally destroyed the army because he did not trust the army. Again, most of these strong men, they really replaced institutions with what we call the cult of personality. The cult of personality, it was, you know, Az-Zaim al-Awhad supreme leader, the only leader, I mean, throughout the region. This was, I mean, the cult of personality became the dominant 
uh, framework of analysis in the region. The people where we say people, I mean, tens of thousands of people paid their lives, were, I mean, brutalized and tortured because they were trying to resist. Many killed over the years. People say, oh, why, why Middle Easterners and Arabs don't rise up? They have. But they were, I mean, look at the history. I mean, throughout from, uh, I mean, the history of Iraq from the 1920s is a history of revolts. Literally, you can read. Uh, so people did resist. Many were killed and brutalized, their families, and I don't need to, to go into that. But what I'm trying to say, the institutional crisis, that you don't have institutions in the region to mediate. So, and these re the reason why they dismantled the institutions is because they wanted to consolidate their control. So they relied on segmented, on parochial interests, whether the tribe or the sect or religion, that is in many ways, really, and this is not the time. If you look at the post-colonial state, the post-colonial state in the, in the Middle East, in my part of the world at least, really never shed its traditional character. That it, it really never became a modern state in the sense because the post-colonial state maintained the features of the colonial state in many ways, in terms of security, in terms of intelligence, in terms of control, in terms of... So in many ways, there was really no rupture between the post-colonial state and the post-colonial state. But for, for our here... For our purpose, what I want you to know is that what you have, you have an institutional vacuum in the region. There, is, there, is, there are no institutions, and there's a vacuum. And ISIS, non-state actors, whether you're talking about Hezbollah or Hamas or Al-Qaeda, they're filling this institutional vacuum. They're offering different visions, different nightmares, different ideas, socially and economically the organic crisis. Let's come to the social, and, and I know we don't have the time. I can spend, uh, I usually give a talk about just the, think of the Middle East. If you look at the modern Middle East, people don't realize the modern Middle East is supposed to be the wealthiest regions in the world, truly, socially and economically, in terms of resources. I mean, Sudan should be the breadbasket of the entire Middle East. Literally, that was Egypt, we, we talked about Egypt. Scholars of Egypt used to say Egypt in the 1950s and 40s and 60s was the Japan of the Middle East. Think of the resources there are. I mean, the, the greatest cash flow in the world is in the Middle East, not in China, by the way. Hundreds of billions of dollars, they don't know what to do. Well, mostly here in Knightsbridge. And, and <laughs> just go and visit the... Or Las Vegas, what have you. Just go and see the, the, the decadent wealth there is. I mean, when you think of the modern Middle East, you would expect... I mean, Libya should have been the Norway of the Middle East, probably wealthier than Norway, much wealthier. Six million people, the greatest. I mean, you have billions of, of oil reserves. I mean, quality, too. Like Lebanon, Switzerland of the Middle East. No, the, the Lebanese have an inferiority complex. They want to be the Paris of the Middle East. When it comes to it's, it's the colonial influence. They have never shared that. On and on. I'm, I'm serious. Uh, Yet, just to give you an idea, 300 million people, we estimate people in the Middle East between 40 and 43% of people in the greater Middle East live either in poverty or below the poverty line. Egypt, 89 million people, we estimate, and these are not the World Bank numbers because the World Bank numbers, IMF, come from the Egyptian government. But on average, between 40 and 43 or 45% live either in poverty or below the poverty line. Think about it. Lebanon, 40%. Algeria, 40%. Yemen, 80%. Gaza, 80%. Think of the wealth 
abject poverty. I'm not talking about poverty. I mean, we're talking about abject poverty. Uh, half of the 43% live on less than $2 a day in Egypt. Imagine. You have a youth crisis. I mean, it's not just about abject poverty. And you know when you have a youth population. Again, we estimate on average 63% of the population of the Middle East are under the ages between 28 years old and 25 years old. Imagine if this particular youth crisis. Unemployment among the educated, semi-educated youth in the Middle East is between 40 and 35%. In Tunisia, it's 50%. So imagine, just think about unemployment, where and even if you find employment, it's uh, subsistence, survival. I mean, think of this particular huge constituency of young men and women, and think of this, it's no wonder why when you, migration, illegal migration, think now mainly coming from North Africa and now Syria and Egypt, uh, uh, thousands of young men are trying, risking their lives just to make it to European shores. In terms, of, in terms of corruption, again, the Middle East tops the world in terms of corruption. In terms of food insecurity, the Middle East is one of the most insecure food resource regions in the world. Again, these are not my numbers. So the Middle East cannot feed itself. Again, in terms of, of, of corruption, in terms of also decadent wealth and, and what have you. You have blockage in the system. So when you have a youth crisis, unemployment, you have abject poverty, and the, the system is, I mean, blocked. There is no way for young men and women to make it. That's why all these numbers, and I know I'm simplifying, give you an idea why millions of people basically revolted between 2010 and 2012. Because it's basically, there was no hope. There was no future. And finally, a spark triggered this particular, I mean, rapture in Middle Eastern societies. So this is really, this is the situation, in, I mean, when I talk about this particular variable. What ISIS really, the most important point, if there is really one point I want you to take out of this talk, is that ISIS is a product, a result. You cannot understand ISIS by studying ISIS. You have to understand the conditions that have given rise to ISIS. You have to understand basically the organic, the institutional and social, economic, and political crisis. I didn't talk about political tyranny. I didn't talk about repression. All these are part of the... So ISIS, in many ways, has found this particular fertile environment, multiple variables that has allowed ISIS to basically insert itself, try to fill this vacuum of legitimate authority and offer a different vision, offer a different worldview. A worldview, it's a you know, pan-Islamist state. It's a worldview anchored in 7th century Arabia a worldview that goes back to the Prophet Muhammad. In fact, if you read their literature, and their, well, they don't have literature, they have pamphlet, and basically they compare themselves to the first prophetic state, literally. It is their state. How the state, I mean, regardless of what the first Islamic state did in 7th century Arabia, surely you cannot impose 7th century Arabia on bloody 21st century, but that's exactly what they do. So if the prophet armies did this, we must do this. It was 7th century Arabia. And the prophet and his army were defending. It was survival. Now you're talking about 21st century Arabia, uh, 21st century, I mean, modern age. But that's exactly what they have done and what they are doing is to try to, what, invest the worldview 
with legitimation. To say, we're not just coming from nowhere. We are trying, we're offering a vision, a worldview, to replace this failed, I mean, uh, state, state system in the region. In many ways, really, I mean, as students of international relations, ISIS really represents a revolt against international relations in many ways. They do not, they, they, they reject the, the nation state, the values and the norms that underpin international society, literally. I mean, whether the, the whole thing, I mean, whether it's not just about Sykes Pico, but the entire system of international relations, the rules and the regulation, the Security Council, out of the window, we have, they, they want to basically create a state, again, a caliphate, a centralized uh, 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 state based on the first original Islamic state which was put in place by the Prophet. So in this particular sense, it represents a challenge. This is a real challenge because, uh, I mean, uh, they're creating their own institutions. They're enforcing their institutions, I mean, rudimentary institutions. And the question given, so when you think the debate, I'm sorry to say, in the West, like all of us here living in the West, and we're all part of this debate, is very simplistic. We think, you know, how much military might shall we do? The, the Americans, and think of the debate in the United States, Barack Obama should deploy American forces. I mean, think of what John McCain and the debate. We need to send the special forces, 10,000, we need to take them on. You cannot throw military might at it. If our reading is correct, if this is a product of an organic crisis, what do you have to do? You have to rebuild the state system that is, is institutional. You have to give people a stake in the order. You have to find ways and means to put out the spreading fires. You have to put an end to the civil wars that has basically, I mean, decimated the region, the Syrian civil war and the Iraqi civil war that have allowed ISIS to find Hadina Shabiya, a base. So it's not about militarism and giving how, I mean, severe this particular crisis. This tells me, and I'm, I'm not speculating here, I don't have to be, I mean, speculate, but it tells me how difficult this particular crisis and how difficult it would be, it's going to be, to dislodge ISIS. And the question for all of you and for all of us to think about what if ISIS, what if it retains power and control? What's going to happen? We, we need to think it. We need to take it into account. What if basically survives. What happens to the system of international relations? I mean, this is in the heart of the region, a very strategic and economic. It's not just, I didn't say a word about the humanitarian crisis, but imagine the consequences, and we need to think about it, because obviously it's going to be with us, sadly and tragically, for a while. Thank you. Many thanks for that very coherent and insightful talk, uh, but I'm sure that there are quite a few questions that we have in the audience. Why don't we try and bundle them up and see if we could get uh, three, four, five questions and then some response. So uh, if we could start off, there's a gentleman in the back there who has a question. Um, who's funding ISIS and who's arming them? Like who's supplying them with weapons and why? Is the division between uh, Shia uh, Muslims and Sunni Muslims something new or something old? 
We have some questions up here. Um, uh, the young lady in the front row. Um, you mentioned people are risking their lives or were risking their lives to making, or still are, sorry, to European shores. How much of a factor are the young people who are risking their lives to go to ISIS from the United States? They're being recruited through social media, Twitter, women are, you know, reaching out to them individually, calling to their sisters. How much of a factor is that, or is it just a tiny drop in the ocean? Thanks. More? Yeah, let's take five. So take we, five. Then we, okay. we'll, we'll We'll try to take as many as, and I, I, I promise to be very curt as well. Who should do something? Is America supposed to do something, or the Arab states are supposed to do something? Okay, and then the last one over there, up there in the back. Guy with the hand. Uh, what do you think... Uh, what kind of threat does ISIS pose, not just in the Middle East, but globally? What are their ambitions globally? Thank you. Well, let me start. Uh, thank you for the good questions. We have uh, fine. Really it gives me, I mean, at least to, to uh, elaborate further on some of the points that I have failed to do so. I mean, I think uh, they have a great uh, global ambitions. Uh, when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the uh, new caliphate, uh, I mean, he is the caliphate of all Muslims, the 1.3 billion Muslims. He does not view himself as just the caliphate in Iraq and Syria. He is basically views himself, when he says caliphate, that means he's the caliphate of all Muslims, whether you're talking about Afghanistan or Pakistan or even Indonesia or, or Libya uh, or even Nigeria. And what we have seen in the last year or so, that basically uh, the impressive gains that have been made by ISIS over the last one year or so uh, have attracted more and more divisions, al-Qaeda divisions in many countries, in Egypt, in Yemen, in Libya, even in Afghanistan and, and Pakistan. More and more militants are basically swearing allegiance to ISIS. You might say, why? For the simple reason that ISIS uh, seems to be winning, that ISIS controls the lives of millions of people. This is the first attempt by what you might call a Salafi jihadi. A Salafi jihadi is an ideology. Salafi is an ultra-conservative Islamist ideology. And jihadi is a militant ideology that believes in basically action. Um, uh, so it is this notion of, of victory. It's this notion that actions speak louder than words. I mean, if you compare ISIS with Al-Qaeda Central, Al-Qaeda of Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahiri, there is no literature. There is no repertoire of ideas. There is no theology. It's vacuous, uh, illiterate, theologically. But really, for ISIS, unlike al-Qaeda, actions speak louder than words. They are winning. They are spreading. And this, they have a global ambition and more and more militants. The question is, what will happen when ISIS, basically, when the tide turns against ISIS? Because there is nothing, no foundation. Even militant groups, you have to have a theoretical foundation. There is nothing there. While other movements, I mean, they have spent um, uh, years developing a repertoire of ideas and legitimacy. So it's very, very uh, ambitious. In terms of arms, uh, I mean, look, uh, all movements, all armies march on their stomach. Uh, that's a simple fact, right? Uh, that for an organization 
you need money, you need resources. I mean, you're taking on the world. You're fighting the Americans, you're fighting the Iraqis, you're fighting the Syrians, you're fighting the Kurds. I mean, literally the world. Uh, and the simple reason is, I mentioned in passing, I didn't have the time, I talked about this geostrategic, geosectarian rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And when the civil war started uh, in Syria, basically you had billions of dollars that went to Syria, to the militants in Syria, to the opposition fighters who were fighting Assad. And mainly the money came from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar, from uh, Turkey, uh, from many countries. And these are not my words. It was Joe Biden who basically was a slip of the tongue of Joe Biden during a Harvard address. Uh, so the money was not going to ISIS. The money was going to radical oppositional forces that are battling Bashar al-Assad. But most of the money basically got into ISIS and its uh, networks. But now the, the finance has changed. ISIS is becoming more and more self-sufficient. When they captured, I mean, when you capture a third of Iraq and Syria, you capture the banks, you capture the territories, you capture the population, you tax the population, criminal networks, you have, I mean, multiple sources of income. The Americans have learned a simple lesson of really in their fight against al-Qaeda. You follow the trail of the money, you starve them, you kill them. That's, it did work in the case of al-Qaeda because they really starved al-Qaeda. But in the case of ISIS, when you control the lives of millions of people, and territories, when you have gas, they control 90% of the oil resources inside Syria. 90% of the oil and gas sources in Syria are controlled by us. And the Americans have been relentless in trying to destroy these particular oil resources. But you have a criminal networks, the evidence that we have, they're selling to Bashar al-Assad, they're selling to the Kurds. I mean, it, it, it's, this is, you know how it is in, in war situations. Uh, warlords, basically, they have the interests of warlords. You deal and, and you get the money, and uh, so they have plenty of resources. Uh, and the more ISIS becoming more and more self-sufficient, even though the Americans are spending a lot of resources trying to really follow. And when I say the Americans, I say the Americans and the uh, international coalition led by the Americans, but obviously it has not been as effective because, I mean, ISIS has plenty of resources. You ask a question about who should, I mean, at the end of the day, really, look, uh, I'm an American, this is not an American, this is not America's fight. In fact, you want to really keep it as minimal. Barack Obama is correct, it really is. In fact, once, that's exactly what ISIS wants you to do. It wants you to own, take ownership of this particular fight because it wants to do what? It wants to change the narrative. It wants to say this is a war between us and the infidels and the bloody Americans. You should not play into their hands. This is a fight. It has to be won by the local communities. This is an internal fight. And how do you do? You assist local communities. You try to put pressure on your own, ally, on your own allies in order to have more, I mean, national unity government, more in order to integrate. And I think uh, Barack Obama is doing as much as he could. He's not interested in the Middle East anymore, but it's a different situation. But this, this particular war cannot be won except by the local communities. This is more of really a social and political fight, struggle, as opposed to a military campaign, even though... Of course, you have to stop the massacres, uh, that, that against, in particular against minorities. I mean, what's happening to the Yazidis and what's happening to... I mean, it, it is disgraceful in the 20th century, 21st century when you have thousands of young women being sexually enslaved, and it really is outrageous. 
what's happening. So you, you need, in a way, to, to stop the, 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 the rise and the resurgence of ISIS. But at the end of the day, you do not want to take ownership of this particular fight. But unfortunately, the local powers, I mean, the, the regional powers, played a major role in the rise of ISIS. So here is, I mean, now we hear that Turkey has joined the U.S. coalition against ISIS. Why now? And why most of the foreign fighters that have made it to Syria, I mean, went through Turkey? I mean, there's no conspiracy. But you have different divergent interests of the regional powers. Iran now is saying we are the major power fighting ISIS. Well, Iranian policies in Syria played a major role in the rise of ISIS. So again, ISIS manipulates the divergent interests, regional powers, and, and, and uh, allows it to um, uh, survive. Young men and women, look, there is really, there is no single factor that helps to, and to help us really, there is no, you cannot say this is it, why 25,000 young men and women have migrated to the lands of jihad in Iraq and Syria multiple factors, partly social media, partly a question of identity, partly ideology, partly deluded souls, partly some man and woman have not been integrated into their society, multiple factors. And it, it really is. There is. I mean, you have middle class people, you have poor people, you have intelligent people, some buy into this ideology, some are deluded. They think somehow that really Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is establishing a caliphate. I mean, I, I, even some student of mine you know, graduate students who really was saying, yeah, the caliphate is, 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 it's a mythology. It does not exist. But this particular mythology, it's a worldview. It's a worldview that still some people really believe. I mean, limited number. We're not talking about, uh, but look, your question really, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised none of you really has given, I mean, given how severe this particular, given the, I mean, gloomy, I mean, uh, landscape in the region. I want you to, I am pleasantly surprised that ISIS has only 30 or 40 or 50,000 fighters. Given the grim situation, I would really have expected hundreds of thousands of young men. Given the desperation, given the abject poverty, given the political and social conduct, truly, uh, that one would have, the question is not why ISIS has 40,000 men. The question is why ISIS does not really have half a million, half a million uh, men and women, given the, the desperate and dismal conditions that exist in the region. Another round? Yeah, let's go for it. So... Okay, um, thank you very much for the speech. Um, basically because um, you, we, we as international students um, are making more sense of this thing which is so present in our lives right now. But it's also really scary. And um, as young students, I would like to ask you, because sometimes we feel powerless or, or we would like to help more, is there a way, a specific way that we could, I know it's not, as you said, our, our war really, it's something that um, we should stop uh, basing ourselves or starting from like a social point of view. but. Um, is there something we could do? And because, as you said, uh, the future, there are a lot of speculations, but if we're putting ourselves in the worst situation and we would like to help to stop it, what could we do? Thanks. 
Um, so I know there's going to be a balance between America having to take care of like the locals versus America having to take a controlling force over what's happening there. And see, where's the speaker? Ah, <laughs> so. Hi. <laughs> um, do you think that this is a question of having to g give better educational resources to allow for something more organic to happen within Islam, or do you think this is something more to do with physical resources that America should provide? Over in the far corner up there. Um, what do we know about the internal political structure of ISIS and how they govern these new territories that they keep taking over? Good question. Three. In the back, over there. Um, you mentioned that ISIS is the result of, uh, well, public support, really. So if the population wants ISIS, why are we, why are we intervening? If, why, why should we just let ISIS win? And then up there, both of us maybe. How much of Islam really does the Islamic State represent? Uh, you spoke briefly about some Islamic aspects and some theological derivations in the ISIS ideology, but how much of Islam does ISIS really represent and where do you stand on this? Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you for another excellent round of questions. Uh, it's a shame we don't have plenty of time to really... I want to start with the last question. As you know, the, 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 there has been a heated debate about how Islamic is ISIS. Uh, I think it's a silly debate, because it's a circle debate. Uh, I mean, it, it is, uh, ISIS basically cites, uh, I mean, extensively from the, I mean, canon. Uh, it cites from, I mean, uh, the verses. It, so, uh, I mean, the beauty and the strength of Islam is that there is no papacy, there is no church. Uh, you could basically uh, take whatever you want. Uh, there is no uh, middle agency between the believer and uh, the sacred. Uh, so in this particular sense, it's not the question of whether ISIS is Islamic or not. Of course, it's Islamic because it's using... Uh, the question is, when ISIS says the prophet, the prophet, prophet Muhammad, was dispatched with a sword, well, fine, that was 7th century Arabia. That's uh, when, when ISIS cites um, uh, certain verses from particular battles. It's citing verses from 7th century Arabia. Uh, and these verses have been overcome and transcended by 14 centuries of interpretations. So you have some commentators, I would not say scholars, who take these particular uh, citations and this particular say, well, look, ISIS is Islamic. It's nonsense because ISIS is basically imposing, I mean, the distant past on the present. It ignores and overlooks 14 centuries of interpretation, like most religions and most canons uh, constructed and deconstructed. You know how it is. So it's very misleading, truly, and I'm not an apologist for anybody, no sacred cows. It's very misleading and false to say that, you know, ISIS is Islamic. ISIS does not speak for Islam. It, it, no one speaks for Islam. Islam, there is no pope in Islam in the first place. 
that's a reality. Um, even the most distinguished and oldest religious institution in the world of Islam, Al-Azhar, does not speak for Islam. I mean, that's the reality. So please keep in mind, we're not talking about it is theology masquerading as theology. It really is. And you cannot understand ISIS or Al-Qaeda or religious activists, radical and revolutionaries, without understanding the selectiveness and how they impose uh, the past on the present and basically take and, and, and choose and... and, and uh, this is the reality. This is not to defend Islam or whatever. Uh, and you cannot basically say reform Islam or the question. It's not about... If you ask me, it's not a question of... of I mean, reforming Islam, it's a question of separating the public from, I mean, uh, the private, the sacred from the state. That's a fact. That's what we don't have in the Middle East. I mean, I think, again, and I probably am a, I'm overstepping my, my boundaries here. I think in, in the Western world, if I may use this term, there, there had been a rapture. That basically the rapture where the church decided uh, or the papacy decided that's it. We want protection and the separation between... Uh, the state and the sacred. This has not taken place in, in the Muslim world. Uh, and this is a major problematic because as long as you say, as long as you say that Islam encompasses all ways of life, then Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi comes and say to you, you're not applying Islam. You have to make an institutional and legal separation. Then you realize you can do whatever you want in the private. You cannot just, uh, because this will constantly, and, and ISIS is not the only movement, is not the only, you might say, I mean, totalitarian movement. You have multiple movements that have risen in the history of Islam because they have this particular vision, worldview. Uh, it's really a utopia because, I mean, the Khalifa is more of a utopia. They're offering a utopia for desperate. I mean, if you tell me what's really ISIS, the, the, the whole idea why men and women are attracted, they're attracted to a mythology, utopia. And you know, throughout Western history, there have been many utopias. I don't need to tell you about that. Uh, I, I, of course, I'm simplifying it. But this is really how the debate is very simplistic. Of course, it's Islamic. That's not the question. But it does not speak for Islam. And uh, you cannot say, let me go further to provoke you, you cannot say that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of, of ISIS is not Muslim. You cannot say it. Who are you? Even if you are a Muslim, who are, am I, or anyone to say is not, because he is using, to him, he basically, this is his interpretation. Uh, but surely it's a very, I mean, uh, misguided and, and, and very skewed interpretation of uh, education. I mean, in many ways, it really starts, uh, I mean, of course, it all comes down to what education, I mean, I, I mean it. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, it's not just about education. It's about institution building, which includes, I mean, education, uh, productive base. It's about multiple things. Uh, so if you tell me, and, and this gives me the question, I, I talked about how the Arab Spring uprisings were aborted. Uh, the, the truth is, I mean, the Western powers deal with the Middle East for the wrong reasons, for other, you know, strategic or um, economic and financial means. There's no interest really in development. There's no inter interest in other social or economic development. The Western powers have often uh, sacrificed question of you know, human rights and the rule of law and on, on the altar of their own selfish and economic interests. You know, we call it 
other realism or new realism or what have you in international relations. But that's the history of the West. And it's truly sad and tragic that that particular moment, that particular promising moment in the history of the region was not embraced and was not really helped by, I mean, the great the Western powers. Uh, Obama did not really want to have anything with the Middle East. He just wanted out. Uh, and the European uh, Union, uh, Europe was inward looking, as you know, and was not interested. So uh, the region really was left to its own devices, and you have the multiple uh, cleavages and struggles with this regional, the fierce regional power struggle between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia that has basically turned the region, social and political struggle, into civil wars and fires. This is really... So yes, you need a great deal of support. I'm not suggesting Western intervention in terms of military, but I'm talking about social development. I'm talking about investment in the, in the, the infrastructure, in the productive base, in the university. Uh, I mean, again, we don't have the time. If you go to Cairo University, Cairo University is a state school. It used to be the jewel of all universities in the Middle East. The entire, probably, elite in the Arab world and the Middle East and Africa was really educated at, the, at Cairo University. It really was the jewel of all universities in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. It's a university that basically accommodates about five, ten thousand students. Go and visit Cairo University today. There are more than 200,000 students at Cairo University. No chairs, no books, I mean literally nothing. I mean, this is, a this is the kind, go and visit the state schools in, in Algeria and Cairo. And the, this Cairo University, and how can you, when you have 200,000 students, uh, no books, I mean, literally nothing. Uh, the salary of professors between $100, $180. So the professors basically, some of them work, taxi drivers, they do multiple jobs. It's, again, um, most of the graduates really are not educated. Most, I would say, semi Cozy, educated, uh, because they don't have the skills. They don't have, I mean, when you can't afford books, when you can't, uh, I mean, just to give you an idea, the wealth versus how little has been invested in the educational and social uh, environment. And I, I think your question, thank you for your question about, you know, we all can do something. I, I wish I, I had had an answer to you. But uh, I think uh, you're, you're, all of you, you're passionate so, but I want you, when you think of the Middle East, the greater Middle East, when you think of ISIS and all the violence and the turmoil, really, is to look at it not through the lens of its culturalist lens. There's nothing unique about the region. There's nothing really, there's no rotten uh, gene out there. Social and political struggles, as you know, I mean, you know the history of the West. And, and this is a, the Middle East today is going through the same, you might say, painful birth banks like other regions in the world. This is a moment, really, I mean, Middle Easterners have to go through this uh, baptism of blood and fire. Um, I mean, I think one day I, 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 was, I sent a, a, an email to John and, and stayed with me, and he said, look, the old order is not, dan, uh, is not dead, and the new order is struggling to really, uh, I mean, emerge, and the ghosts of the past are coming to haunt all of us. This is really what you have. I mean, it really we can understand what's happening is that you have basically the old and the new. We don't know what kind of features. And you have this fierce struggle taking place. And really ISIS, in many ways, it's, it's the ghost of the past, you know, as Ramchi would say, coming to haunt. Um, I'm hoping it's a short history. And I'm in the same way that other regions, including Europe itself, 
went through this particular phase, the Middle East would basically prevail ultimately, the millions of people, the silent majority, and I'm not exaggerating, the people who came out to celebrate dignity. I mean, I think in terms of, um, you know, uh, going to the region, studying in the region, communicating with the region, connecting with the region, in my, you can do a great deal um, on an individual basis. Another round? Fine. Sure. Yep. One up front, one in the back, two up top, and one in the middle. Hello. Um, do you think Israel can play a role defeating ISIS? Everybody knows that Israel has a really bad relation with Arab countries, but like ISIS, it can, can represent a major threat to Israel. So can Israel play a role to uh, defeat ISIS in somehow or trying to st stop ISIS somehow? Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Sir, how important are, are Western jihadists, uh, young men or even women who come from UK and Scandinavia to join Islamic State? How important are they for that organization? And, and <laughs> second one, relationship with Islamic State and Turkey. How important uh, can Turkey solve this problem? If if ISIS wins and uh, it becomes a state, uh, I, I, I said you, I remember. Where's the? Ah, I remember you said they don't believe in nation state and uh, IR theory. But if they end up conquering a big uh, a big area and have resources, would they ever be part of the international scenario? Could they ever trade if they uh, end up winning? And besides the human cost, which uh, obviously they. Uh, don't agree with uh, our Western standards of living, but uh, what what else would they do? And also, do you think that calling them a, a Islamic State, or sorry for mispronouncing it, da Daesh, does that impact their power? Thanks. Hi, Professor. You mentioned so many typical Arabic countries, but may I please ask how do you think the attitude and strategy of UAE under the more, uh, current situation of the Middle East? Thanks. And also, this, uh, can I ask a second question? How do you think the ISIS effect in the uh, North African, further, further south, like Nigeria? Thanks. Uh, could you draw some insight, Ms. maybe on the um, uh, Iran deal and the restoration of diplomatic powers and the uh, increase of their um, power in the region? And you said about the uh, internal uh, social um, institutional way of rebuilding a region and how they could uh, impact considering their geographic uh, proximity. Can we squeeze in just that last? Absolutely. Hi, um, thank you. Um, thank you again. Um, so you mentioned earlier that um, defeating ISIS would have to be taken over by local communities. So I was wondering how other 
countries and other Arab states in the area are, are helping invest in human capital, such as um, investing in students going to universities in the country, like in various countries, such as, I don't know, more stable countries in the region, like Morocco or Jordan. And yeah, like how are they investing in human capital? Thanks. Questions. I mean, uh, what 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 can what can Israel do? Uh, Israel can do a great deal, really. And I thank you for your question because I, I have not mentioned. If you if you really read closely, the rhetoric of ISIS and the various groups, I want you to know that the tragedy and the predicament of the Palestinians lies at the very heart of their discourse. Uh, I, I'm not exaggerating. You might say, what are you talking about? Why would, why they are fighting in Syria and Iraq and the, if you, again, and I, I didn't mention this, that central to their worldview is the, is the question that these pro-Western entities, stooges of the West, have basically let the Palestinians down, have not taken care of the Palestinians I mean, it is the, the Palestinian question because most commentators don't really delve deeper into this. They say the only way to f liberate the Palestinians, the only way is to get rid of this particular regimes and rulers who are preventing the people from helping the Palestinians. The point is that what I'm trying to say is that Israel can do a great deal to diffuse a critical element of this particular worldview and ideology by basically allowing the Palestinians to be free. It's really simply. No one wants anything from Benjamin Netanyahu. We don't, we don't need anything from him, but let the Palestinians be. I mean, that's really as simple as that. We don't want them to compromise. We, we know and all the nonsense about compromise. This is not, it's, it's not compromising. But let the Palestinians be free. Pull out of Palestinian territories. Stop, basically, colonizing Palestinian land stealing Palestinian lands, starving people in Gaza. I don't need to tell you that these are not my words. These are John Kerry and Barack Obama who have tried to convince for the last six, seven years. That is everything, have everything, but just no. So Israel can do a great deal, truly. If you ask me, and I didn't mention this, and thank you, for, but at the, at the heart of this particular organic crisis that ideology, that the, the, the vacuum, that the, 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 the discrediting of the entire system is that the Palestinian tragedy in the eyes of these militants in the region in particular attracted. Uh, so really the only thing Israel and should do uh, for its own security in the first place is to basically pull out the Palestinian lands and accept an international settlement based on consensus. This is really minimalist, truly. And this would be good for everyone. It's really win-win. I know it's a cliche. It's win for Israel. It's win for the Palestinians. And you also pull the rug from under, under the feet of these militant uh, groups. Uh, uh, look, there are between 3,400 and 5,000 Western fighters, give and take. Uh, we have between about 700 British fighters. By the way, I didn't mention this, 20%, we estimate that 20, we don't estimate the, the existing and don't buy the numbers, please. Whenever you hear numbers, be skeptical. We estimate that 20% of the 25,000 fighters are women. 
I mean, that's, that's a fascinating thing, you know, when you have uh, quite a few Western women French and uh, I don't think they're making a, I mean, you're talking about an army, mini army, uh, but we have examples uh, is, you know, where Jihadi John, they, I mean, what he has done, horrendous, uh, I mean, a, a savage killer. So they, they put him into, and we have testament, and testimony, sorry, from many local Syrians and Iraqis who say that foreign fighters tend to be the most vicious and the most savage because they have no vested interest in the region. They really don't know local communities. So they do most of the beheadings, and they do seriously, and the crucifixion and what have you, they're done by foreign fighters because it, it's just uh, they don't know the communities, and they tend to be quite very promiscuous in the use of force and violence. But it, it is beyond the... This is a huge... Uh, uh, Turkey, look, there is no conspiracy really behind uh, what Turkey... I mean, if you, if you ask me what's the strategic goal of Turkey in terms of priority, I would say from 2012 to the present, the most strategic goal of Turkey is to oust Assad. This was the strategic goal. Even if the temple come down on everyone's heads, this is it. It opened the borders, literally. Anyone, welcome. Because the reality is Erdogan and his associates came to believe that it became personal. And, you know, really personal. Because Erdogan, you know, I advised him. He didn't listen to me. He lied to me. Literally, that's what he says. I said, of course. But do you expect Assad to say not to lie? <laughs> I mean, I, I was surprised that Assad lied to Erdogan or his former minister. So this was the strategy of Turkey, is to open the borders and allow young men to come and basically uh, force Assad out. And the pressure was overwhelming on Turkey. And, but, of course, uh, Turkey says, look, I have massive borders with Syria. What do you expect me to do? It tried to do certain things, in particular in the last year, because of the pressure. But Turkey has not really invested major resources and major capital in trying to have you might say, shut, close down its borders rigorously. Because the idea was they were still hoping that somehow the more fighters, the Assad would be. Now, the change, the strategic, you know how wars are. They're transformative. I mean, I don't need to tell you. I mean, they start somewhere, they end somewhere. So now the strategic goal of Turkey is no longer Assad. It's to prevent the Kurds in Syria from having a other an independent or autonomous entity. And that's why, if you ask me, why has Turkey decided to join the U.S. coalition, the international coalition led by the United States? Simply because the Kurds have proven to be the most potent and skilled local fighting force in Syria. The local Kurds in Syria are, have defeated ISIS. They have defeated ISIS in Kobani. They have defeated ISIS in Tel Abyad. They have captured more than 190 villages. This pati- these particular, fo- truly, and this tells you, it's a question about short history and we're not speculating. When you have a skilled, determined local force that's fighting to protect its community, ISIS could be defeated, would be defeated, will be defeated. So what Turkey has realized, suddenly the Turks never expected the Kurds to basically do as, as, as much damage as they have because they have been mobilized. The Americans have really invested a lot of resources because most of the, 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 I mean, the advances made by the Kurds have been helped by the American coalition, particularly the American Air Force, literally speaking. The Americans, I mean, pave the way and the Kurds come in. I mean, literally, uh, in, in Kobani, I mean, the Americans 
To give you an idea, the Americans have carried out more than 2,300 airstrikes inside Syria in the last one year, in the last, in, in the last 13 months. 96% of American strikes, 96%, according to the Pentagon, have been in support of local Kurdish forces. I mean, it's unbelievable. It, it really is unbelievable, this partnership, because the Americans, it's as, you know, as the U.S. defense, he said, this is an ideal force. So Turkey, and they are getting closer to have a contiguous region with their counterparts in Iraq. So Turkey, again, realized that this is getting out of control, that Assad is really still a priority, but the priority is to prevent the Kurds from having an autonomous other entity or independent states in Syria, because you have an independent state now in, in Iraq. So here you have both, and imagine, because this particular, I mean, the leadership in Turkey was all due to respect, instead of looking at its own Kurdish population as, you know, in terms of a plus, as in terms of, it, it fears the, the, this whole idea of the, the whole idea of identity, and this is a different question. Um, so this is this is where, so Turkey now is saying, okay, we'll fight ISIS, but let us also take on the Kurds, the militant Kurds, and uh, we have to see whether the Americans will sell the Kurds inside Syria. I doubt it very much, regardless of you know that realist politics and what have you, because the Americans need the Kurds inside Syria against ISIS. They would not sell them in the same way that they did sell the Kurds in Iraq in the 1970s and 1980s for both the, the, the Iranians and the Iraqis. So this is really where Turkey comes in now. We have to, the, the, the danger lies in the fact whether Turkey really goes against the Kurds. My take on it, what Turkey is trying to do is to insert its own supporters, Syrian opposition, in areas, in the Kurdish areas, to prevent, to create really separate um, uh, cantons and, and, and uh, villages and areas so the Kurds won't have, won't have the ability to have a contiguous um, area throughout uh, Syria. This is really uh, where we are today with Turkey. Um, the United Arab Emirates. Who's to ask me the question? Uh, thank you. Well, look. Talking about the, the, it was all. I mean, you know, the Arab Emirates is a lot of money and resources, and you know, it's, it's Dubai. It's, it's, I'm talking about population basis. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, you have a few hundred thousand people. All due respect, I have tremendous respect for the United Arab Emirates. That's not the question. But we're talking about, you know, the, the countries that have the population size. There is no population, and it's it's a you know, a few hundred thousand people, and does not really have. I mean, there, there is no. Uh, so that's why I focused on. So it's it's a it's a Las Vegas model. It's a, it's a Dubai model. It's it's a successful because of the resources and the. But that's a different thing. It's it, when you talk about Egypt or Algeria or Iraq and this is where the population. Uh, that's what I did not mention. Um, but that's a different story about how does Dubai whether Dubai really offers any. It it, it cannot be imitated or replicated anywhere else for the simple reason. Uh, it, it's an international zone in, in a place where it's, it's a fascinating thing, but uh, Iran, this is really, I, I think uh, you asked me the question, yes. I, I think, uh, to my mind, uh, the American, or well, not the American, the Iranian, the nuclear deal with Iran, uh, the five powers uh, plus one, really represents a, a strategic 
uh, change in the landscape of the Middle East for a variety of reasons. I think in many ways, uh, not only it ended the state of institutionalized hostility between the United States and Iran. I mean, it's more than three decades. I mean, I think Iran now hopefully will be integrated into the international system. Iran, hopefully, this would have major implications on politics inside Iran itself, opening up to the world. Many people, I can tell you, many people inside Iran believe that this is the best thing ever happened to the Iranian civil society. It really, most likely, it will empower civil society. That's why the ultra-conservative forces in Iran, I mean, lose the the deal. And, of course, the ultra-conservative voices inside the United States. Because it's, it's, also, it tells us a great deal about, I mean, for Barack Obama to do what he has done in Iran, it really is quite a, a, a political miracle because he, he stood up for something finally, and, well, Cuba too, which is, um, you know, the, the fact is that, that uh, he said, I, 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 I don't want war. This, this president, say what have you, is that really he is trying to really change the dynamics of American foreign policy by saying, before we go, let's try diplomacy first, simple thing. Um, and he, for the first time, he cited the Iraq war. He said, well, we've seen what you've done, and we've seen the results. I'm going to try diplomacy. Let's try and see whether this works. So it has, the problem is, is that, you know, I mean, it, it's, in the region you have Saudis and the Israelis very upset. Uh, we have to wait and see whether this particular, really, uh, I mean, uh, agreement could be translated positively in the region. That is, to what extent will Iran moderate its position vis-à-vis Syria? Will Iran invest less now in Assad? Will Iran play a positive role in Iraq and other? I mean, the jury is still out there. I don't expect a qualitative shift in Iranian foreign policy. This is a pivotal state. Um, Iran is not going to change its foreign policy overnight. Um, The conservatives are, you know, deeply entrenched. Uh, the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, is the commander-in-chief. Mother Rouhani Zarif are in charge. So it's going to take a long time, but I think it's a good step in the right direction. And in particular, it ends the whole idea about this, the idea of war because, I mean, the reason why this is very important because Iran was two, three months, four months away from acquiring the know-how and the means to have to develop a nuclear weapon that would have basically put the U.S. or Barack Obama in a very difficult bind because he says if Iran reaches this particular stage, he would use all means, including war. So in a way, the deal really has, I mean, eliminated at least the possibility of military confrontation between the United States and Iran, at least for the next, you know, five or ten years um, and more, I hope. Thank you. We've just uh, run out of time. Um, and we haven't run out of questions. There are many more questions out there, but uh, Professor Georges has many more answers. Read his forthcoming books and keep uh, looking out for him on the the news. He's often on uh, BBC, uh, Al Jazeera, even CNN. Um, (laughs) And uh, uh, look out for him. He keeps on coming back. Many thanks. Thanks.